Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have Tracy Turner here with me from London. Welcome to my podcast, Tracy. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy that we will also uh, meet at the Opus Fan conference in uh, Italy very soon, where we will both be uh, speaking. Yeah, I look forward to that very much. I think it's going to be a great conference. Yeah. And just as a short intro, uh, Tracy uh, Turner is a renowned entrepreneur and seasoned business executive who has been involved in leading social businesses, social investing and international development for more than 20 years. She's the founder and executive chairman of Copia Global, which is bringing e-commerce to the base of the pyramid starting in East Africa. And in 2005, she founded and served as CEO of Microplace, which is a web-based brokerage service for everyday people to make social investments around the world. And Microplace was acquired by eBay. And at that time, Tracy also founded and chaired the Silicon Valley Microfinance Network. She's a regular speaker also at conferences and in the media and have won numerous global leadership awards. You are very, very particularly passionate about using the best of capitalism to end global poverty. So what is the best part of capitalism that we can use? When you think about the global poor across Africa, Latin America, Asia, in my travels and my experience, everywhere you go, you find people are incredibly talented incredibly intelligent, incredibly hardworking. And what they really lack is opportunity. It's not really about working hard or being intelligent. It's about opportunity. And I learned this early on when I was a student in college and I was living in Kenya at the time. And it was so apparent to me that everyone around me generally you know, they, they could have gone to an Ivy League university in, in the States. They just lacked the opportunity. And so I thought, you know, if you can bring opportunity in the form of private sector employment and skills that give people the opportunity to be a part of the global economy, you're really swimming downstream. And so that led me on a path to where I am today with my career which is finding ways to bring capitalism to, particularly to East Africa, where I work. And in terms of Copia Global, um, I saw somewhere it was described as the best of Amazon plus FedEx or some similar company as a service, right? Can you tell us how come that came about and how, what was the first kind of kickoff point to develop that? So we've started Copia Global in uh, with a pilot in Kenya in 2013, and the idea we were we were kind of throwing spaghetti at the time um, to see if the idea would work, and the idea was, gosh, you have about 750 million people just in Africa alone, where the global economy is essentially passing them by, so. If you look at, you know, my world in San Francisco or the developed countries and you look at life for urban wealthy people across the developing world, 
the world is spinning faster and faster, right? There are more and more apps available to us and more and more services that deliver packages to our doorstep. I can order food for dinner and it's here in an hour. I even have an app on my phone for my dog, right? <laughs> but if you look at the developing world and the, the middle income and low income strata, which in Africa is a, is a huge number, right? It's like 750, 800 million people. The global economy is really passing them by. It's really left them aside and said, they're not connected. They don't have smartphones. They don't have internet. They don't have addresses. They don't have awareness about good products and services they might need or want. They're hard to reach. They live down muddy roads. Not a market opportunity, certainly not a profitable one. And so you find that these are very hardworking people running their households, running their families, just like I do mine, but they don't have the same products and services available to them to better their lives. So we said, look, with the advent of mobile technologies, that for the first time, you know, just in the last 10 years or so, the development of the, these mobile technologies, even just on feature phones alone, enable us to to use the best of e-commerce and the best of delivery services like FedEx to create a service that can profitably serve these middle and low income people living in villages in Africa. How are you serving these people and in, you know, in how many locations right now? How do you, how do you grow this? What we do is go into a village in East Africa where we're based now and ideally we'll grow across Africa, but right now in East Africa. We go into a village, we find an existing shopkeeper who is running some kind of small shop. You know, it might be a hair salon or it might be a pharmacy or it might be a, a small kiosk selling a handful of consumer goods. And we recruit them to be a Copia agent. We give them a tablet that has the Copia app on it. It's a very, you know, simple e-commerce app, much like Amazon or another e-commerce app you might be familiar with. And then customers come and go from their little shop um, who live nearby in the village and they order whatever they need to make their life fulfill their family needs. So we have everything from sacks of rice to motorbikes to school books to shoes to fertilizer to pots and pans to dish soap, you know, and everything that you would need to run your family. Then the orders come to us through the tablet device, which is connected to us via the cell phone network. So there's no need for internet connectivity. And then within two days, we deliver to that agent shop and the customer gets a text message saying, come and pick up your goods. And so that way we're able to profitably reach middle and base of the pyramid people with um, a high quality service, just like you might get in the West that meets the needs of their, of their family. And almost always our products are below market prices. It's convenient because it's right to their village. It gives them infinite choice of products that they need for their household. And it's really transformative for them that they become empowered global consumers through their trusted relationship with Copia. So we're in 4,000 villages right now, uh, growing fast. So the plan is to be in 17,000 
villages in Kenya alone, and then we'll expand into Uganda, Rwanda, and Tanzania in the coming couple of years. And this is, of course, a for-profit uh, company in, in all, all respects, right? Yes, it is. I mean, back to the point about bringing the best of capitalism to address global poverty, we've structured Copia as a for-profit business. We have private sector investors invested in the company with the vision to build. A, I think if you build a company that's profitable, so you don't have to spend all of your time fundraising um, philanthropic dollars, then to me, that's swimming downstream. Yeah, sure. Fantastic. And what's your uh, now plan for this, let's say, expansion, both in Africa and maybe elsewhere? What is your like dream picture of where Copia is going? Well, the dream would be, you know, world domination. <laughs> we'll take it one step at a time. I think the business is is highly relevant across Africa, absolutely. And that's definitely our vision to be pan-African in the coming 10 years. It's highly relevant in many countries in Asia and highly relevant in many parts of Latin America, but we'll take it one day at a time. And right now the plan is to pursue our rapid expansion across into Western Kenya and on into Uganda in 2020. And then we'll launch Rwanda, Tanzania, and start our expansion into West Africa in 2021. Great. Fantastic. Really, congratulations to this uh, incredible uh, work. But I'm just curious about the platform as such. What, what else can you bring into that platform, which is not typically maybe products? Is, have you been thinking about that? Yeah, if you think about what we're building, it's really not so much about e-commerce. It's more about, and our mission statement is to be the trusted partner for middle and low-income Africans, where all of our energies are focused on building a trusted relationship with that consumer, who quite frankly is used to being ripped off and used to being neglected and used to having to you know, travel far and pay high prices and often get goods that break or cheap knockoffs, you know, and they're not used to having a trusted partner to help them with their consumption decisions. And so really, ultimately, that's what Copia is about. At the heart of the business is being that trusted partner for middle and low income Africans. And so if you think about the business that way, the e-commerce products that we're providing today, the household goods and farm inputs and some construction goods and some school supplies and so forth, that's really the foundation that enables us to build a profitable business. But on top of that, you can imagine layering um, healthcare services and insurance products and financial services and um, educational services. Like there's a whole host of additional services that we could provide as we deepen our relationship with that end consumer. Fantastic. The potential is just uh, huge. <laughs> as you say, you have, you have also private investors involved uh, that, of course, believe in this long-term potential. And could even more capital speed up things? Or do you need to have a certain time frame to this in order to really make it work? So when we started in 2013... 
more capital would not have helped us, right? We needed to experiment. We needed to test different ideas. If you haven't read The Lean Startup, the book called The Lean Startup that came out a, a while back, it's an incredibly valuable read for any entrepreneur because it teaches you how to fail fast, try different things, experiment, fail fast, learn from the good and, and build your business. And so in the beginning, that was definitely our approach. And we still, we're still very lean startup environment where we test lots of different ideas every day and have a very innovative approach to our growth because you learn so much every day from running these experiments. But now at the point where we are today, which is closing in on profitability, will be EBITDA positive soon. Now is the time where more capital is good because now we need to hit the gas and grow fast replicate in multiple countries. And that just requires capital. And so the hope is that the um, market reaction to Copia as we've grown is, you know, the closer you get to profitability, the more capital is there ready and waiting to help us once we're replicating across the continent. Fantastic. So, so how is, I mean, is there a typical day of yours that you could describe? Uh, I mean, you're also the chairman of the company and so you have people who are also running the operations and so on but how much are you involved in the daily stuff still um 100 <laughs> so i'm the founder and the the chairman of the board of directors um but i don't live in kenya where the business is headquartered there is a ceo who runs the business and he's phenomenally good at what he does he's got a logistics background which is terrific for us because Most of the costs of the business are in the delivery component of, of what we do. But a typical day for me involves phone calls very early in the morning, uh, phone calls very late at night, <laughs> because <laughs> often talking to investors based in Europe or board members who are around the world or the team based in, in Kenya, which is an 11-hour time difference from San Francisco. Because I'm based in Silicon Valley, I can bring a lot of expertise, particularly technology expertise, to the business, which is incredibly valuable because end-to-end, -end, we are a technology business, full stop. We could not be profitable unless we were. And a typical day for me is a little disjointed because the time difference. I work early in the morning. I then get my kids off to school. I've got three small kids. So I get them off to school and then I'm back at my desk about nine o'clock in the morning to actually put my head down and get some, some work done. As the chairman of the board, I generally focus on fundraising, which is critical to our success. It's a capital intensive business. PR. So when the media is interested in doing a story about Copia, as the founder, I often am involved in that. I do a lot of board management and investor management a lot of strategic planning and a lot of time on the phone with our CEO or travel to Kenya to help in running the business, a lot of recruiting senior, senior members of the team. Then I try and pick my kids up from school every afternoon and spend a few hours with them before I get online after they go to bed in the evening. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks for, for sharing that. No, because just to give, you know, get some kind of a, um perception of, of how it can look like. But um, in terms of investor um, relations, you could say, uh, and the fundraising aspects, 
What are the challenges there, if there are any right now for you? Or, or how is it to have that dialogue with the investors? I mean, what do you find especially intriguing? Well, when you say Africa, base of the pyramid, e-commerce in one sentence, most private sector investors, commercial investors, you know, run in the other direction, <laughs> especially in the States. A lot of, in, in America, there's, a limited number of funds who are actually experienced in working in Africa, who are commercial investors. So a lot of our investors have an impact angle to their to their investing, where they are looking absolutely looking for a financial return, but they're also interested in having an impact in the world. And you know, and the lens can be different for each investor. So especially when we were small and just getting off the ground and there was a lot of speculation like, wow, is that, can that even be a profitable business? The ones who take that risk and are willing to make that bet and who see the, the vision and the potential of that idea were impact investors. They see the opportunity in Africa, which is unbelievable. I mean, it's massive right now, the potential for growth and, and how fast the continent is growing right now is a bit mind boggling to me. And so most of our investors up till now have been impact investors. As we get to profitability, then you'll see commercial investors will start having the, you know, the risk profile will have been reduced enough that I think we'll see large amounts of commercial capital flowing in at that time. The depths of the pockets of commercial investors are massive, right? Trillions of dollars. And impact investment capital is, you know, a few billion dollars. It's um, not comparable, which is another reason why having a, a for-profit model means that ultimately you have much, much deeper pockets to access than if you're reliant on impact capital, which is finite. The good news about impact capital is it's growing rapidly every year. Like the amount of impact capital flowing, particularly in Africa right now, is is growing massively. So there's a lot more of it available, particularly for companies that are starting to get towards profitability and some scale. But it's in general, if you're going to ultimately be a billion dollar business or a, you know an African unicorn, you, you'll have to access commercial capital. Going back to you, uh, Tracy, there is um, there is this you know word uh, Latin word patire, which is uh, really the core of the word passion that we use very much in our modern world, very much to express maybe what we like and what we uh, you know kind of enjoy. I'm just after you know the the, the perspective of what is really driving you so uh, so much, and and that you're also willing to suffer for if needed, really. The world's greatest evil, in my mind, besides oil, <laughs> is like the underutilized mind, right? So to have intelligence in a human brain and not be able to use it to its full potential is just a tragedy. And so I think what makes me so passionate about the developing world is the raw human talent and intelligence that is just underutilized. It's a tragedy. And you see it and experience it so, so often. I mean, 
particularly in East Africa, you have quite highly educated populations and more and more so every day. You know, the number of children in Africa who are finishing school or getting degrees is increasing dramatically by the day. And so you have more and more university graduates who are underemployed. And to me, that's a huge opportunity, a tragedy, and, and also therefore an, an opportunity to, to leverage. So there, there are some business models in Kenya that I am really inspired by and across Africa because they are tackling that problem, right? There's a company called Indela that basically takes best and the brightest and turns them into technology experts that are infinitely employable around the world. And that is just such an inspiring model because it's tackling exactly that challenge of, you know, an intelligent mind and, and then unleashing it to pursue, you know, limitless opportunities around the world. And that to me is a real, um, gets me out of bed in the morning. And, and what would you say are like your transformational points in your life so far that have uh, influenced you the most? Well, you start off with saying giving birth <laughs> to, <laughs> to my children. From a career standpoint, I went to Dartmouth College, which is in the Northeast of the US and took a class when I was a, a freshman, my first year there, that was called The Politics of Starvation. And it was taught by a man named Jack Shepard, who I remember vividly the very first day of class and just how completely life-changing that first class was for me. And we're, we're studying famines around the world and kind of post-Cold War era rejiggering of the use of food aid as a political weapon in this post-Cold War era, and then looking throughout history at how food aid had been used as a political weapon, particularly during the Cold War. And Jack, the professor, brought donuts <laughs> from this special donut shop down the street that was kind of famous locally. And we had a break in the two hour long seminar. There's only eight students in the class or something like that. It was a small seminar environment. And we had a break in the two hour long class and he would give us donuts and you were studying famine and he's giving us donuts. And it was all very, you know, what are we doing eating donuts? There are people starving in the world. And but he had such an impact on me because he said, look, you have to live up to your potential as an intelligent, highly educated talented American with every opportunity available to you, including food in your stomachs to go and do something about this, in, you know, in the world. And I learned all about the history of food aid and politics. And then fast forward two years, he led a Dartmouth study trip to Kenya to learn about international development and development economics and, environmental issues. And so I got to live and work in Kenya as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old. And I ended up working at the World Bank in Nairobi after that. And we got to see, I actually worked on food aid as the topic that I 
I worked on at the World Bank there in Nairobi. And it was during the famine in Somalia uh, in 1993. I went back and did my thesis on that, that famine and the use of food aid. And I just have never looked back. That really sent me on a trajectory in my career that has just led to, you know, every day having a reason to get out of bed and wanting to work on this with a passion. Wow. That's also, you know, a way you could say you were, you were lucky that, I mean, you, you never know when you're going to meet people early on or when in life, when they're going to maybe say something or do something or give you some piece of, you know, information that is exactly the piece of the puzzle you needed in order to maybe uh, understand uh, what is your purpose in life, right? To work with. So that was really a gift. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I was an engineering major. Like I, <laughs> I thought I would go build some cool gizmo and that was my passion at the time. And then, you know, you walk into one class and all of a sudden your life's trajectory changes. And I think it's a testament to go out and have lots of different experiences and, and then, you know, follow your heart, allow the, allow the path to zig and zag. Mm. Yeah. But if, uh, if you would dream now and uh, think that you have all doors open to you and you have all kinds of resources available, what would you immediately go and innovate and, or, or change, you know, be it in the world where you operate now or if it's something else? I worked in microfinance for many years because if you think about what microfinance is, it's essentially about giving very tiny loans, micro loans to low-income people to enable them to grow their tiny little business into something larger. Often capital constraints are the reason why people are stuck in a cycle of poverty. So if you can give them a little bit of capital, they can actually pull themselves out of poverty through their own hard work and ingenuity. And you know, I've seen that. I uh, worked in Bangladesh with the Green Bank and you know, saw that firsthand and I've seen it all over East Africa and elsewhere in the world I've worked. And, and if you think about that concept, it's all of what's good about capitalism and what's good about human ingenuity and what's good about inspiring people to raise themselves out of poverty, all wrapped up in one nice bow. Like it's really a powerful tool if I could snap my fingers, I would take that concept to the next level, which is what if every woman entrepreneur in this world or every woman who had the potential to be an entrepreneur had as much access to capital as white men do? In the United States, 98% of venture capital goes to white men. And almost the rest, the rest of the 2% goes to white women. Minorities get nothing, practically. I mean, imagine if every minority potential entrepreneur had access to all the capital that they deserve to give in their business idea and women across the world and low income people in developing economies had access to the capital they need. I don't think we'd have any poverty in the world because there's no limit to, to the amount of hard work and talent and intelligence there are in people of all colors, of all countries, of all income levels, but that access to capital is a limiting factor. 
That's a very discouraging fact. I mean, 2%. I thought it would be, I would guess it would be much more. Wow. I know. I did the math. I thought, okay, so if I was a man on average, so maybe I'm not a particularly good entrepreneur or whatever, but assuming I'm average, right? That means I've raised 2%. There should be another 48% in there, you know, to get me to 50% equivalent to my male counterpart. So that means I should have raised 25 times the amount of venture capital I've raised, right? So instead of having the, you know, the $20 million we've raised at Copia, we had 25 times that. I mean, mean, imagine where we'd be. We'd be Pan-African already, right? I mean, it's quite mind boggling when you just look at, you know, look at the women entrepreneurs who have raised venture capital funding and imagine if they had 25 times that amount. They'd be on, on par with their male counterparts and they would be in a totally different stratosphere in terms of what they could build, what businesses they could build. And if there is a, one piece of um, advice you could give to uh, leaders, however you choose to define those, what would it be? One of the things that makes Silicon Valley quite unique is failure is actually viewed as a badge of honor because you learn so much more from your failures than you do from your successes. And I got a lot. I can, (laughs) I've learned a lot. (laughs) So I think that that's an incredibly powerful view of the world that I wish more leaders around the world could adopt because if they did, they would be willing to take more risk willing to set out on their own to pursue that idea they've always dreamed of pursuing. And we'd have more innovation in the world, which gosh knows we need innovation in all aspects of our world today. I think also the the idea that, gosh, if I went out and then tried something on my own and I failed, I wouldn't be able to put food on the table for dinner or I couldn't pay the mortgage or couldn't pay my student loans or whatever it is. But the way that I've always thought about it is I can always go out and get a job working for somebody tomorrow if I need to. There's always a job out there that I can apply for and and eventually get. So to me, there was no real risk in being an entrepreneur because I could always go back to working for somebody else, making a nice steady paycheck that, you know, somebody else worries about funding. So Copia is my my third for-profit company, and I've also done one nonprofit. Um, so my fourth startup. I just never along the line have ever thought I was taking risk. I always just thought of it as, you know, this is what I love to do, so I'll do it. And if I can't pay the bills, I can always go out and get a job. But I, I don't think that's a commonly held sentiment. I think a lot of leaders are risk-averse about pursuing their own ideas. Are there any, like, one or two maybe small examples that you could give of companies that you personally admire, you know, whether they're in back in the U.S. or whether it's in Kenya or... In my space, because Copia is an e-commerce business, one of the largest e-commerce businesses in the world is Alibaba, which is a, basically a Chinese version of Amazon. And the leader is Jack Ma, and he's one of the most 
admirable leaders in the world, I believe, today. He's an incredibly good entrepreneur, an incredibly intelligent leader, incredibly inspiring person. And Alibaba is has launched something called Netpreneur, which is a contest for African entrepreneurs to um, be recognized and funded and supported by Alibaba. And um, it's Jack's belief in entrepreneurship on the African continent that drove him to want to launch that. And I think that he has aspirations on the African continent that will be great for Africa to bring that kind of leadership, that kind of innovation, that kind of business mind to, to helping Africa grow even more rapidly. China has been for a long time uh, really, I mean, long-term investing in, in, in Africa, right? Yeah. For better or worse, right? I mean, there's a lot of concern about China's lack of focus on human rights and lack of human rights at home and lack of interest in human rights where they're investing. And I understand that. But I think for Africa to grow at the pace that China did, it requires significant investment and investment that the Chinese are making. I mean, if you look at the most powerful tool to address global poverty in the last century is absolutely the the economic growth of China. You know, hundreds of millions of Chinese have gone from poverty to middle class because of the growth of their economy there. So you can have all kinds of nonprofit models, all kinds of for-profit models to address global poverty, but there's an example right there of a way to get hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And I think the same thing will happen in Africa in the coming few decades. Yeah, and they are really well positioned in that sense. And and if we uh, go back to you, Tracy, if you were to give advice to yourself, let's say 15 years ago or so, what would it be? If I rewind 15 years, I had a lot less experience, but a lot more energy. So I was running around, where, and I also didn't have kids. So, so, I, so I was sleeping through the night, and therefore that's why I had more energy. So I was was a lot less efficient, right? I had more hours to spend, but I was less wise and less experienced. So I was running around a bit like a crazy person because I, I was working hard, working long hours, and I was smart, but I just didn't have the wisdom and experience. And I think the most valuable thing you can do when you're early in your career and you have entrepreneurial aspirations, et cetera, is to surround yourself with advisors and people who have more experience than you and to leverage the network of friends and colleagues that you have made throughout your life to lean on them for advice and connections. I went to business school and I think one of the most valuable networks I have are my business school classmates and being able to lean on them for advice and guidance and connections and so forth as I've built my companies. And I wish I had done more of that sooner and appreciated the value of it sooner. And even now, as I'm kind of much more mature in my career, I realize just the value of leaning on 
friends and colleagues and connections who are wiser than me and whatever the issue at hand is. And that's also a good reminder that, you know, the world is a small place and your network is everything. And so always carrying yourself in the most positive way you can is really, really important and valuable. You know, your reputation takes years to build and a moment to lose. Tracy, what, what do you think is the most important thing for all companies to focus on right now? Yeah, it's uh, just one thing, which is people. If you have good A-plus people, you'll have a wildly successful company. And if you have A-minus, B-plus, B-minus people, you won't. It's pretty binary in my experience. And the most important thing that any leader of any company can do is hire really great people. And ideally, people who are smarter than you and better than you and more experienced than you at whatever their job is. I think that's a can be a real fatal flaw in a leader where they might feel threatened by somebody who's better than them at their job. But I think that you know the the smartest and most impressive leaders are the one who the ones who bring talent surround them with talented people and then be the best cheerleader you can be to support them in their success and to do whatever they need to have the ability to succeed that's really the definition of a leader. I think as a CEO, you know, most of my job was HR, was recruiting and then cheerleading to support the team success. And if just the final question, Tracy, is um, uh, if possible, a bigger, even bigger, bigger one. What do you think the world needs most at this time? Education. I think if I, if I really thought about the many, many challenges in our world today that seem more complex by the day and and harder to address from political polarization to climate change issues to global poverty to gainful employment. The common denominator across all of those things is education. The day after Trump was elected, no matter what your politics are, I just thought the world needs more to, to make education a bigger priority, right? Immigrants issues are huge around the world today. And to me, the crux of understanding how to tackle immigration issues is education. To me, it's a very simple solution how to make it happen is not simple but gosh if i could snap my fingers and have the world make education of our of our children and and re-education of adults if you know there's changes in economic environment like we're seeing today where you know pretty soon there aren't going to be any truck driving jobs left because they're going to be self-driving trucks and gosh if we could provide those truck drivers with education on how to be coders, man, the world would be a better place. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, as I think about that question, yeah, it's really about making education a uh, number one priority. Unfortunately, that's not the case. 
especially in the States where I'm from, it's a, quite a low priority and I'm not sure how that's going to change anytime soon. Thank you so much, Tracy. Thanks for sharing everything. Uh, for people to find out more, um, where should they head? So the easiest place is just go to our website, which is copiaglobal.com, C-O-P-I-A-G-L-O-B-A-L.com. And feel free to reach out anytime. Great. And is there any particular social media that you prefer that where you are active? Oh, we're on Facebook, Copia Global, on Twitter. Those are the main channels to learn more about the company. Okay, that's great. Okay, and everybody will also find links and show notes on uh, corporateunplugged.com slash podcast. Tracy, how was it to be on the podcast? so fun to do podcasts i really enjoy them i'm excited about your specific area of focus i think it's really inspiring and i will enjoy listening to all of your future podcasts because it's such an important topic i think to think about how to use corporate platforms to approach ways to transform the world thank you so much tracy and uh, remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify and Acast and also rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it and of course share this episode with people you know would benefit from hearing it thank you so much for listening and until next time live with purpose and remember to unplug ciao ciao, thanks so much